Let us pray. Father, your spirit has searched your depths and knows your thoughts. Now, we have received the spirit who is from you, that we might understand the things freely given us by you. I pray that you would help me to teach this by your wisdom, interpreting your truths to your people, that you might be glorified. For those that reject the things of your spirit, I pray that you give them contrite hearts, that they might be humbled and broken until they come to recognize their need of forgiveness. Amen. Should have written that part down. Today we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. I'd like to start by reading the entire first chapter of 1 Corinthians. While you turn there, let me warn you that there are three rather uncomfortable truths in this passage, truths that are hard to really think about without feeling somewhat challenged or even insulted. What makes these truths hard to hear, however, is that we, just as the Corinthians before us, have a tendency to think too highly of ourselves. That is exactly why Paul brings these truths up. He is seeking to humble the Corinthians who had begun to boast in themselves. He is reminding them that they have no reason to boast in man, no reason to boast in themselves. As we read, it is good to remind ourselves that it is only our pride or boasting in ourselves that makes God's word difficult to hear. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with wise words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. <clears throat> God purposes to destroy man's wisdom. Our text this morning, chapter 1, verses 26 to 31 is part of a larger argument that starts in chapter 1, verse 10, and goes to the end of chapter 3. The Corinthians had begun to boast in man and his wisdom. Paul is admonishing them as beloved children and urging them to become imitators of him, not boasting in man, but boasting in the Lord. We know that the Corinthians have erred in their thinking because Paul has to admonish them. Imagine yourself in the place of the Corinthians for a moment, listening to Paul's rebuke. Here's what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? That is to say, fleshly, not spiritual? If that were directed at you, would that not be hard to hear? But Paul's willing to speak the truth in order to help the Corinthians to see themselves rightly and be humble. The Corinthians were not behaving as mature spiritual people as they imagined themselves to be. On the contrary, they were behaving as infants in Christ. They were boasting in man's wisdom. Because of this, Paul reminds them that God's plan of salvation is intended to destroy man's wisdom so that no human being might boast in his presence. He goes on to say that God gives to some new life in Christ so that they would boast in the Lord. These are the two practical elements we'll be looking at this morning, the put off, don't boast in man, and the put on, boast in the Lord. <clears throat> God purposes to destroy man's wisdom. God turns the tables on man and shows man's wisdom to be folly. How might that work? How does God show the wisdom of the world to be foolish by his method of salvation? Perhaps I can make clear how God does this with an illustration. Let us say there is a team captain who's picking a team for a basketball game. 
There are two types of players to choose from. The strong, talented, tall players, basically NBA stars like Jordan or Steph Curry or LeBron James. The sure winners. On the other side, there are unskilled players who cannot shoot or jump and have no experience. The sure losers. The team captain intentionally picks the worst and least promising players for his team. He takes those players and in his own strength destroys the team of NBA stars. The NBA stars' height, skill, and experience are shown to be worthless. This is essentially what happens in God's plan of salvation. God flips the tables around so that those who we thought were the sure winners, those that um, are wise, strong, and noble by worldly standards, they turn out to be the losers. And those that are seen as foolish, weak, low, and despised, God chooses them to spend eternity with. We see that this is God's intended purpose in verse 19 of chapter 1, where God declares that he will destroy the wisdom of the world through the word of the cross. Verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. How is he going to do that? according to verse 18, by showing that the word of the cross, which the world thinks is folly, is actually a display of the power of God. He does this by saving people, not through the wisdom of the world, but through what is folly to the world. As verse 21 says, For since the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God is intent on showing the folly of man's wisdom. But the church in Corinth had begun to revert back to a trust in man's wisdom. In order to correct the Corinthians then, Paul explains that the wisdom that they are boasting in is the very wisdom God is intent on destroying. The very means of their salvation is a refutation of man's wisdom. Paul reminds them of this with these three uncomfortable truths. These truths are... Salvation comes through a foolish message. It is God who chooses, and he intentionally chooses the foolish, weak, and insignificant to show the folly of trusting in man. God saves in this way so that no human being, no flesh, might boast in his presence. These are the uncomfortable truths I mentioned earlier, the truths that make us wince a little and want to turn away and not think about These truths are meant, however, to cause us to look inside ourselves and see what we are truly like. When we look at our true self in the mirror of God's word, there are two responses. We either turn away and forget because we don't want to think about what we're truly like, or we persevere in our looking and do what God's word calls us to do. This process starts by us looking honestly at ourselves. This is Paul's purpose here, to Uh, to remind the Corinthians that God saves in this way so that no human being might boast in his presence. Paul's reminders are meant to be humbling. Let's look at Paul's reminders, these uncomfortable truths, and be willing to be honest with ourselves before the Lord. The first of these truths, the gospel is foolish, irredeemably moronic in the eyes of the world. We can see this in several verses here. First, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
the word of the cross, the substance or message of the cross, the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. The gospel is foolishness to the world. There's nothing smart about it. It is a senseless and ridiculous message. We see the same in verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Those who are saved are saved through folly or foolishness. They did not discover some clever thing. They believed something which they themselves, in their own wisdom, would call foolishness. There's nothing to boast about in that. Verse 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. People want displays of power and wisdom. Instead, they get a crucified Messiah, an apparent weakling who can't even rescue them from the Romans. He comes and is rejected and killed by his own people. It's not hard to see why that looks foolish and weak to the world. And that is part of why it is so hard to share the gospel. We know that in man's wisdom, it is foolishness. The more we boast in man or care about man's judgment, the more cleverly or wisely we try to make our gospel presentation. When we do that, we undermine the substance of that very gospel. That's why Paul says in verse 17, I didn't preach the gospel with wise words, lest I empty the cross of its power. Undermine the very substance of the cross. In other words, he wants his presentation of the gospel to match the substance of the gospel, which is foolishness in the world's eyes. That is the first uncomfortable truth, meant to keep us from boasting. We are saved through a foolish message. We did not come to faith through plausible words of wisdom, or wise words, or cleverly devised myths. In fact, in our own strength, our own heart, we saw the gospel as so foolish we would never have believed on our own. Or, as we are told in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That means we would never choose God on our own. The gospel doesn't make sense to us in our own wisdom. It is stupid. This takes us to the second uncomfortable truth. It is God who does the choosing, not us. The unregenerate heart hates God, and it would never choose to believe. Look back at verse 21 of chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It is according to God's wisdom that all this happens in this way. The world or unbelievers do not come to know God through wisdom. Rather, through foolishness, God saves those who believe. It is God who does the saving. We see his effectual calling in verse 24 as well. But to those who are called... You can see that Paul is using called here synonymously with saved. He does the same with the word chose later on. Again, in verse 9, we see God's calling. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 27 and 28 make it abundantly clear that it is God who is doing the choosing, i.e. the saving. <clears throat> But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose us, he called us, and it is because of him that we are in Christ. This is a critical piece of the puzzle. You did not choose God initially, he chose you. You did not invite Jesus into your heart because of a change you made to your heart. It is God who enlightens the eyes of the heart, Ephesians 1.18 says. Listen to how John puts it in John 15.16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. If you are saved, it is because Jesus chose you, not because you first chose him. You did not turn from your sin because you saw it as evil in your own wisdom. You did not turn to God because you saw him in your wisdom as he truly is, the one true and living God worthy of all praise and honor and glory. You were only able to see him this way as he truly is because he chose you and opened your eyes and gave you wisdom to see. And again, this leaves us with no grounds for boasting. Because we could not, in our own wisdom, see God as worthy of being honored as God. So far, we've covered two of the uncomfortable truths which are meant to keep us from boasting in ourselves and our own wisdom. The first, we're saved through a foolish message. The second, we're not even wise enough to choose God. He had to choose us. This brings us to our third and final uncomfortable truth meant to keep us from boasting in man. God chooses the foolish, weak, and insignificant. This isn't something any of us like to think about, even if we recognize it as true from time to time. We don't like to dwell on it. In verse 26, however, Paul tells us to do just that. For consider your calling, brothers, he says in verse 26. When God called you, what kind of person were you? What desires and motivations did you have when you were called? When you examine your life, when you look back, would you say you were living in a manner that you would now call wise? Since that time, what has changed? If you were to look at your life then and your life now, do you see a difference? That is the nature of what Paul is asking them to do. Consider those things. Think about them. Inevitably, when we do this, we find that we were in pretty bad shape. We needed God and we continue to need him. Paul wants the Corinthians to be reminded of this, to recognize their dependence on God, in a word, to humble them. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. <clears throat> not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Not many. That phrase doesn't sound too bad. When I hear that, I have no trouble believing that not many people are wise, powerful, or noble. But when I examine why I think that, I realize that it is because I think it's not talking about me. It's talking about most other people. And I tend to think that I am the exception. As it turns out, most people think they are not foolish. They think they are at least reasonably smart. It can probably come up with a few people that are certainly dumber than they are. Because of this, what we do without thinking about it is put ourselves in the wise group. We have no trouble thinking that not many Christians are wise because we think that we are the exception. However, if there are not many wise, strong, and noble among the chosen, what characteristics make up the group of the chosen? 
Look at the next two verses. Whom did God choose to be his people? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So the word here that the ESV translates as foolish is mora. It means foolish or stupid. It's also where we get our word moron, and it means roughly the same thing. If you're you're chosen, then according to man's wisdom, you are part of the group which is made up of the foolish, weak, low, and despised. That is how the world sees you. That's not so pleasant to think about, but it's true. Whom did God choose? God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. This is who we are. We bring nothing to the table. God did not choose you because of anything in you that made you worthy of being chosen. The chosen are the foolish, the weak, and the low and despised in the world. In fact, it's worse than that. Look back at the end of verse 28, at the expression, things that are not. Let's read it one more time. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. There is a list here, a series of what God chose. He chose the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised. But this final element of the list, things that are not, is a comprehensive and climactic characterization of all the preceding items. In other words, all the other items build into this final expression, and this final expression characterizes all of the preceding items. In our context here, it means the group of chosen ones are so foolish and so weak and so low and despised, it's as if they are not. They do not even exist. That is how low and despised the chosen are. If you're saved and have the Spirit of God in you, that's how the world sees you. That is the last of the uncomfortable truths meant to keep us from boasting in ourselves and our own wisdom. God's method of salvation is intended to remind us that man's wisdom, our wisdom, is folly. We have nothing in ourselves to boast in, and yet, unless we fight against it, we are continually drawn back to boasting in ourselves. So far, we've seen why the chosen ones have no reason to boast, but what about the wise of the world? The second half of verse 26 says, to bring to nothing things that are. This means those who are wise and strong and noble according to man's wisdom, those who are, God brings them to nothing. This is God's intended purpose in choosing those whom he did. Let's read verse 27 to 29 again. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He chose those whom he did to shame the wise and the strong and bring to nothing those esteemed by the world, so that no one is left to boast. 
Not the wise or noble or strong, they are ashamed, nor the foolish and weak, because they know they weren't chosen on account of anything in themselves. Remember our basketball players? The captain took these unskilled and weak players and destroyed the NBA stars with them. Now the stars can't boast because they lost. The weak players cannot boast because they know they did not have the skill or ability to win on their own. God does the same thing in choosing the weak, the foolish, and the insignificant. He silences the wise of the world by defeating them, and he silences any boasting on our part because we know that we were not chosen because of anything in us. No one in hell is going to be boasting about how they outsmarted God or how they're stronger than God. This is the intended purpose behind the three uncomfortable truths, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The first, we're saved through a foolish message. The second, we were not even wise enough to choose God. He had to choose us. Third, God chose the foolish, weak, and insignificant. And God did these things in this way so that no human being would boast in his presence. It is worth taking a moment to ask what boasting might look like in practice. If God's chosen method of salvation is meant to rid us of this boasting, we should probably know what it looks like in our own hearts. What does it mean to boast in ourselves? Remember what Paul first asked the Corinthians to do, to consider their calling, to reflect on who they were on their own and what God had done for them. This was meant to humble the Corinthians. I think that our boasting finds its root in this. When we, instead of being humble, start thinking that we were chosen because we were somehow worth choosing. One common way we do this is we start thinking that the gifts we have received from God are not gifts at all, and we start to think ourselves superior to others. We can see the Corinthians doing this in 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Corinthians had received gifts, and they had begun to act as if they had not received them. In other words, they acted as if the gifts they had received were not gifts at all, but simply who they were. This is what leads us to believe we are chosen because we are somehow worth it. We look at the gifts God has given to us, and we think the gifts are a reflection of our own worth and value. The natural corollary of this is that we must be better than others. After all, that is why God chose us. We look at ourselves and think, it makes sense that God would choose me. I may not be great, but I am sort of smart or generous or knowledgeable about Scripture, or kind or moral or good-looking, better than Him anyway. Once we begin to see ourselves not as the undeserving and blessed, but as better than others, we are boasting. This is difficult because God has made us better than others in some areas. We all have gifts that God has given to us, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4-7, in every way you are enriched in him so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let's ask ourselves some questions then to gauge our hearts and help protect them against this temptation. 
What do you think sets you apart? What makes you different? Or in some area, better than others? Your looks? The way you dress? Do you find yourself looking around and wondering why people don't spend a little more time trying to make themselves look a little better in the morning? Maybe it's your intelligence that makes you stand out. Do you find that other people cannot understand things the way you can? You do not suffer fools gladly, as they say. Do you find yourself getting frustrated when people cannot understand what you're trying to say? Or maybe you're really skilled at finances and have saved a lot of money. Or you're a really hard worker. You're diligent, get up early, accomplish what you plan, and just shake your head at people who cannot seem to get out of bed when their alarm goes off. Now, all of these things, your looks, style, brains, planning, diligence, they're all gifts from the Lord, all of them. And when we forget that and start to believe that they're not gifts, but that we are better than others because we have them, that's when we're boasting. Let's read 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7 again. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If you are intelligent or diligent or good-looking or healthy or strong or kind or hospitable, praise God and rejoice in the gifts he's given to you. But do not forget that they are gifts. You do not deserve them. You did not earn them. Anything good in you that sets you apart is a gift from God. Be grateful and praise God for it. When you find yourself looking down on others, beware, you're boasting. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul gives us a good example of being grateful for our gifts when he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, he recognizes that he is who he is because of God's grace, and more than that, he doesn't want that grace going to waste. So he works as hard as he can and still gives glory to God for his ability to do the work. That is right thinking. God has designed our means of salvation to make sure that no human being would boast. But God doesn't stop there. To some, not many, he's given new life so that they might boast in the Lord. In verse 28, we saw that God chose those who were so foolish and weak and insignificant It was as if they did not even exist. They weren't. Here in verse 30, we read, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. If you are chosen, you now have life. You now exist. You are. The other thing to see is that you do not exist alone or for yourself, but you exist in Christ. Not only have we been given new life in Christ, but we've received other things as well. Let's read the entire verse. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our entire life now is in Christ, and he has become all these things to us. He is, in effect, our life. He is our wisdom, 
to know our need for God from the very beginning. He is our righteousness by which we were saved. He is the strength in our sanctification, our life now, and he will return in the future to redeem his chosen ones. These things that we have already received from Christ are in some sense yet to be fully accomplished. We are still struggling within our fleshly sinful bodies to become more and more righteous. But we can be certain that if we are chosen, we will struggle, and one day when Christ comes to redeem his chosen ones, we will be victorious. He will return one day to redeem us. Inherent in the new life we have in Christ is the promise of this return. <clears throat> what a great day. <clears throat> Also, there is the implied need for change and work on our part until that day. Let's read verse 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the ultimate purpose mentioned. The final, conclusive, all-encompassing purpose. The first, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And now this, if you are chosen, you are given new life so that you might boast in the Lord, in contrast to what we boasted in before, which was ourselves. This is the work you as a believer have to do. This is the purpose described here for your new life in Christ. God destroys man's wisdom so that no one would boast in man. And he gives to some new life in Christ so that they would boast in the Lord. <clears throat> You'll notice, however, it doesn't say simply, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This gives us another piece of information. The so that tells us, as we mentioned, that this is part of the reason for our new life in Christ. The phrase, as it is written, tells us that this is not some new purpose, but a purpose that was known before and written about before. In fact, this is a rewording of Jeremiah 9.24. Let us turn to Jeremiah 9, and for a tiny bit of context, let us look at the preceding verse, verse 23. <clears throat> You'll notice right away, Jeremiah is talking about the same three categories of boasting that we have seen in 1 Corinthians. Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. These are the same three categories we saw in 1 Corinthians. God chose those whom he did, so no one would boast in man's wisdom, might, or nobility. This is what we see here in Jeremiah 9.23. Do not boast in man's wisdom, might, or riches. And just as in 1 Corinthians, the exhortation here in Jeremiah is do not boast in these things, but in contrast, boast in the Lord. We find the second part in verse 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, 
that he understands and knows me. It is this that Paul is quoting when he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In rephrasing it this way, Paul is equating boasting in understanding and knowing the Lord with boasting in the Lord. This then helps clarify with a bit more precision what boasting in the Lord looks like. How do we boast in the Lord? We need to understand and know him. This is the ultimate purpose behind our new life in Christ. The outcome God desires is that we would boast in understanding and knowing him. In a practical sense, these are still rather vague terms, though, understanding and knowing. Fortunately, Jeremiah provides more specifics in verse 13 and 14 verses. Before we look at those verses, though, a quick, very brief and perfunctory reminder of the context of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah before and until the captivity of Jerusalem, as Jeremiah 1.3 says. He warned of the coming punishment of the Lord because of the people's faithlessness. Or, as Jeremiah 9.25 puts it, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. God has said he's going to punish his people, but at the same time he asked this question in chapter 9, verse 12. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? That is, understand why they are going to be punished. To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? The implied answers are obvious. Unless the Lord speaks, his people will not understand. God's people do not understand him and will not know why they are being punished. Because of this, God explains it to them in verses 13 and 14. Here is why they are getting punished. Here is why they do not understand and know the Lord. Verse 13. Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but, in contrast to that, have stubbornly followed their own hearts and gone after the Baals. God's people are going to be punished because they stubbornly followed their own hearts and went after the Baals. They were, as verse 25 puts it, circumcised merely in the flesh. They did not obey from the heart, but followed their own heart instead. In contrast to this, there were several things they failed to do, things that they should have done, things that would have led to understanding and knowing the Lord. Look again at verse 13. They have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. In other words, they rejected God's law by not obeying it and living it out. They rejected God's law by not obeying it and not living it out. Let's put all this together. We've learned from Paul, quoting Jeremiah, that boasting in the Lord is boasting and understanding and knowing the Lord. And in order to understand and know the Lord, we need to be obeying God's word and living it out. We need to be implementing in a life-changing way the things we are convicted of as we read. That's why we were chosen. That's why we have new life in Christ, so that we might boast in the Lord. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's look at this in terms of steps we can take to grow in boasting in the Lord, in understanding and knowing the Lord. First, we need to be regularly reading God's Word. Second, we need to be following or obeying the convictions of the Spirit as we read His Word. And third, we need to be putting these convictions into practice in a life-changing way. The first is rather obvious, right? We need to be reading God's Word regularly. Um, there shouldn't be any confusion on this point or any need for elaboration. Assuming you have the Spirit of God in you, this is the first step to take in order to grow in understanding and knowing the Lord. We learn this over and over in Psalm 119. God's law, His Word, is a loving expression of Himself to us. If you want to understand and know Him, you need to start by reading His Word and praying for wisdom to understand. If you're not regularly reading God's Word, how do you expect to grow in understanding and knowing the Lord? The second step, which works in conjunction with reading God's Word, is that as we read or hear the Word preached, we are convicted of good that we need to do. If we aren't careful, we can begin to treat this conviction as if it were an optional suggestion. But if God calls us to do something, we need to do it. We need to obey His voice or we are in danger of forsaking Him. God has given His Spirit to us to give us understanding of His Word. Part of obeying God, then, is to listen to the convictions of His Spirit as we read His Word. James tells us in chapter 4, verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. These convictions of good we ought to do that we receive as we read God's Word are not mere suggestions by the Spirit. They are revelations of the thoughts and intentions of our heart by the Spirit. Look at Hebrews 4, 12-13. For the word of the cross is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Our thoughts and intentions, our true motives and desires, are laid bare and exposed as though we were naked with nothing to hide behind as we look into the mirror of God's Word. God's Word is living and active and part of God's means of showing us the areas of needed change in our lives. And mark well this last point, we will give an account to God. He knows what He's shown us and what we've done with it. The Word of God is living and active, as the writer of the Hebrew says, and the Spirit of God uses the Word to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our heart. God reveals our true motives and thoughts to us as we read His Word. God, God's Word shows us what we are truly like, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, for the purpose of teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. The Bible isn't just a book. It's part of God's active intervention in our lives to grow us, to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ. As we do this, 
we grow in understanding and knowing the Lord. We boast in the Lord. The final step we can take in order to understand and know the Lord more fully is to walk in accord with these convictions, to implement these convictions in a life-changing way. This is more than simply obeying the commands in Scripture, although it's that too. The idea is closer to what you would read in the Psalms or the Proverbs. Psalm 101.6 says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. Who are the faithful? He who walks in the way that is blameless. Walking here is not an isolated action. It's a way of living. It's a lifestyle. To walk in accord with the convictions of the Spirit, then, means to put those convictions into practice so that they become how we live, not just something we do for a week or two after hearing a sermon, or, God forbid, only think about doing, but never actually implement. In other words, as we read God's Word and follow the convictions of the Spirit as we read, our lives should change to conform to what we learn. You do not put into practice the good that you are convicted of as you look into the mirror of God's Word. You're not a doer of the Word. But James says, you deceive yourself when you are here only. Some examples of how this might work. A husband is listening to a sermon about how he should be loving his wife as Christ loved the church. As he listens, an image comes into his mind from the previous night of him sitting on the couch watching TV and pretending he cannot hear his wife calling him to help her with something. He is convicted of the fact that he's been self-centered and has not been loving his wife as he, as he ought. This is what it means to look at your natural face in the mirror, as James says. A wife is reading 1 Peter 3, 6, and learns that the righteous woman used to call her husband Lord. A memory of her calling her husband an idiot comes to her mind, and she's convicted of her lack of willingness to submit to and respect her husband, because she thinks that she's smarter than he is. A child reads that he needs to honor his father and mother. As he reads, a memory of him hiding something his parents have told him he shouldn't have comes into his mind, and he realizes that he's not honoring his parents. He's lying to them. That is how the first two aspects of this work. If you have the Spirit of God in you, this happens. You find yourself convicted of some area of needed growth in your life while listening to a sermon, or reading the Bible, or fellowshipping with other believers, that is one of the ways the Lord moves in us to cause growth and change in our lives. The question is, what do you do with it? Do you turn from looking and forget what you are truly like and deceive yourself? Or do you continue to look and diligently work out those changes in your life with fear and trembling? That's your choice. No one can make you do it. But it is the third step in this process. Taking those convictions and putting them into practice in your life. In other words, walking in accord with those convictions. We need to be regularly reading God's Word. We need to be following or obeying the convictions of the Spirit of God as we read His Word. And finally, we need to be putting those convictions into practice in a life-changing way. All three steps are required to grow in understanding and knowing the Lord. What might this third part look like? Think of that husband who was convicted of his self-centeredness and lack of love towards his wife. If he wants to grow in understanding and knowing the Lord, he will start by confessing his sin to the Lord. Acknowledge his behavior as sinful. The next step might be memorizing those verses that convicted him to help renew his mind and keep those convictions fresh so he doesn't slip back into the same sinful behavior. 
and thereby fail to walk in accord with the Lord. The final step will be to make some change so that he's actually living in a more loving way. That might be that he commits to prioritizing helping his wife over his own comfort and relaxation. Or he might commit to helping his wife make dinner instead of watching TV or many other things. But the point is that if he's going to grow in understanding and knowing the Lord, he must make some change in his life so that he's actually growing and loving his wife. If he does not change his behavior, he does not grow. If he comes to church week after week and is convicted over and over of his need to change and yet does not change, this is not a man who is growing and understanding and knowing the Lord. That is a man who is forsaking the word of the Lord. That man has no promise of blessing. That man is not a doer of the word, but a hearer only. God's method of salvation is meant to humble us and show us the folly of relying on our own wisdom. With our new life in Christ, we're meant to rely on God's wisdom and be conformed to his image. And the way in which we are conformed to his image is by reading his word, and as we are convicted by his spirit, putting those convictions into practice in a life-changing way. To be a believer is to be regularly changing and conforming to the image of Christ. Um, let me pray as the band comes up to uh, prepare for our final song. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for choosing us, for loving us by sending your Son to die for our sins, that we might be given life in his name. We thank you knowing that we would never choose you because we are too stupid to know what's good for us. We need you to give us wisdom that we might understand how to honor you and glorify you and so be satisfied and contented in you. Please help us to diligently plan how we might grow in the areas you've convicted us of this morning. You give us the strength to do your will, but it's our work to do. You don't do it for us. Please humble us and give us strength to be obedient. For those that forsake you, there is no hope. Amen.